Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan 1132. My name is Jim Wittevine. Happy to be here with you once again. And today we are going to speak about one of the big ideas in what I hope is the first of a series on the big ideas that are shaping our world. And the big idea that I want to speak about in this episode is utopianism, the idea of utopia. And what is utopia? What is the history of this concept and why it's so important? And in doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus particularly on two books and especially uh, on one book in particular, which is the book entitled Utopia by Thomas More. The other book I want to talk about is the book New Atlantis by Sir Francis Bacon. And I first of all want to explain why it is that I'm choosing to speak about these two books published somewhere between 400 and 500 years ago, when there are so many issues of the day that I could be addressing, so many current events that I could be talking about, why talk about these old, musty old books? What's what's the importance of them? And that's what I want really want to explain, and that's why I want to do this series on the big ideas. Because I think in order to really understand movements in current culture, to understand the spirit of the age, so to speak, we need to understand the roots of the thinking that we're encountering. And one of the most important of the big ideas is the idea of utopia. And I want to begin, as my seminary professors always began, with a definition. And the definition of utopia. What is utopia? Well, utopia... Uh, according to Merriam-Webster, often capitalized. It's a place of ideal perfection, especially in laws, government, and social conditions. Secondly, an impractical scheme for social improvement. And thirdly, an imaginary and indefinitely remote place. So all three of these parts of the definition really fit well with what we're going to speak about. It's a place of ideal perfection, uh, speaking and focusing especially on laws and government and, and social conditions. Uh, it's also, uh, generally speaking, or, or absolutely speaking, an impractical scheme, and we'll speak about why that is so. And it's an imaginary and indefinitely remote place. It's something that's, that's uh, it inhabits the imagination, perhaps we could say, it's something that's always over the horizon. It's in some other place. And those who work toward utopia are constantly working towards a goal that can never be achieved. And so, as I mentioned, I want to begin by looking at the book by uh, St. Thomas More. Uh, he was uh, beatified by the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, a little bit about Thomas More. Who was Thomas More from biography.com? He wrote the book Utopia in 1516. It was the forerunner of the utopian literary genre. Uh, he served as an important counselor to King Henry VIII of England. He served as his key counselor in the early 1500s, but after he refused to accept the king as head of the Church of England, he was tried for treason and beheaded. He died in London, England in 1535. Moore is noted for coining the word utopia 
in reference to an ideal political system in which policies are governed by reason. He was canonized by the Catholic Church as a saint in 1935, and he has been commemorated by the Church of England as a Reformation martyr. So that's uh, Thomas More. And while I'm introducing him, I will also introduce Francis Bacon, the author of New Atlantis. And Francis Bacon uh, lived a little later. Uh, he served as Attorney General and Lord Chancellor of England, but resigned amid charges of corruption. His more valuable work was philosophical. He took up Aristotelian ideas. He argued for an empirical inductive approach known as the scientific method, which is the foundation of modern scientific inquiry. So he was born in 1561, and his book, New Atlantis, was published in 1624. So we'll talk a little bit about the book, but really we're going to focus in this episode more on the book Utopia by Thomas More. To begin with the message of Utopia, what is it, first of all? Well, it's it's kind of a novel. It's introduced uh, with a, a conversation between, uh, ostensibly between Thomas More and a traveler who had been to uh, this place called Utopia. And the first thing that we should focus on is the name Utopia. What does that mean? And Utopia, it's a, it's comes from Greek. It comes from two Greek words. The, the first part means not, and the second part means place. So not a place. So it's not a real place. But it also could be a play on words because you could also mean good in Greek. So it could mean not a place or it could mean a good place. But be that as it may, it's obviously an imaginary locale. And it's a place that more invents in order to talk about in order to discuss what he considers to be an ideal society. And there's discussion among literary critics about what Moore's point was, but I believe he really was speaking about what kind of society would be ideal and comparing that ideal society to the current society, the, the medieval Middle Ages society in, uh, in Europe at, uh, that was present when he was alive. So making that comparison, what would be an ideal society? And in doing that, he wasn't really doing anything new because this, this kind of ideal or discussion of an ideal place goes back, we could say it goes, goes back as far as, as Plato, uh, Plato's Republic, which uh, perhaps I'll, I'll be discussing in a future episode, also deals with what is the formation or how, how can a, an ideal society be formed and how can it be set up and, and how can we make a society uh, as close to perfect as as possible. So when we look at uh, utopia, when we look at the introduction, first of all, we see what goes into making a utopia. How can we we arrive at this place of perfection in society? And he goes back in the introduction, which is the the, the conversation written as a conversation between himself and the traveler. Uh, he goes back to Plato, and the traveler says, "I hold well with Plato, do nothing uh, and do nothing marvel that he would make no laws for them that refuse those laws whereby all men should have and enjoy equal portions of wealth and commodities." All right, this book was written in the 1500s, so it's a little bit complicated, but I'll explain 
what it is that he's he's saying here. And I'll just continue the quote, first of all. For the wise man did easily foresee this to be the one and only way to the wealth of a commonality, if equality of all things should be brought in and established, which I think is not possible to be observed where every man's goods be proper and peculiar to himself. So how do we arise at Utopia? How do we arrive in this place? Well, we do that by ensuring that every person in the society has an equal share of the wealth. So it's complete equality. Complete equality is a must in order to have this utopia. And that goes back to, uh, as he says, it goes back to Plato, but it's also a common theme, a common thread among utopian thinkers, that we need to have absolute equality in order to achieve the ideal society. So in the introduction to the the version of Utopia that I have, uh, the, the editor quotes a scholar named Davis, who says, in Utopia, Davis argues, people are as potentially transgressive as they are in the real world. So Davis, the scholar, he claims that uh, human nature remains the same in utopias. Their desires as potentially subversive to collective well-being, no change in humanity, so humanity is the same. In utopia, the availability of material satisfactions is as limited as it is in reality, so no change in nature. So, so resources are just as limited in utopia as they are in real life. The utopian solution to the problems of reality, according to Davis, is to idealize neither man nor nature, but organization. The utopianist devises bureaucratic and institutional systems in order to contain desire and transgression, and thus to apportion a limited supply of material satisfactions. So what we have... And what we arrive at is a society in which human nature is the same. That's at least the claim of this scholar who studied utopian literature. And there's still a limited uh, availability of resources. So that limited availability could also cause problems. So man's sinful nature, we could say, will continue to cause problems. The, The limited resources will continue to cause problems. But what we need in order to achieve this utopia is organization. We need to have a a top-down organizational system in which everything is controlled, in which everything is is monitored, in which everything is is guided towards its, its directive. And with that control, with that organization, we can achieve the perfect society. And we see see this in uh, Thomas More's Utopia. Because he speaks about how the, the utopians on this island of utopia, how they planned things out so that there would not be uh, strife or, or disagreement or fighting over the resources. They, he says this. He, says, uh, he speaks about what they grow, the crops that they grow. And he says, And though they know certainly for they know it perfectly indeed, how much victuals the, the city with the whole country or shire round about it doth spend. Yet they sow much more corn and, and breed up much more cattle than serveth for their own use, parting the overplus among their borderers. So they get rid of the surplus uh, among the people on the borders of, of the community. 
Whatsoever necessary things be lacking in the country, all such stuff they fetch out of the city, where without any exchange they easily obtain it of the magistrates of the city. For every month many of them go into the city on the holy day. When their harvest day draweth near, and is at hand, then the philarchs, which be the head officers and bailiffs of husbandry, send word to the magistrates of the city what number of harvest men is needful to be sent to them out of the city. The which company of harvest men, being ready at the day appointed, almost in one fair day, dispatcheth all the harvest work. So to explain briefly what he means, he's talking about technocracy. And that's technocracy is a word that's going to keep coming back, and it's going to be one of the big ideas that I'm going to focus on in a future episode as well. But the idea of technocracy is to have this class of people, of experts, who govern all things, who supervise all things, who have an absolute record of all things. And this is exactly what we see happening now in the 21st century. Now we have the technology available to be able to monitor What's available where? Where the resources are available, where they're needed, where they're being overused according to someone's uh, judgment or where they can be better used. But all of this demands a centralized control system. And so we can see that Utopia, Thomas More's Utopia, has this centralized control system which knows exactly how much stuff is needed, which knows exactly how many workers are needed, and which knows where they need to be sent, where the stuff needs to be sent, and how everything needs to work together. So it's that centralized control over all things. And that goes back to uh, the introduction of the book where the editor talks about the idea of utopia as, as a victory of planning, a, a victory of government, even when human nature is the same, even when the, re- the scarcity of resources is the same as it is in the real world. And going on in, in to, to interact with what the introduction says, what, what that scholar claimed about utopias, about the, that human nature is the same, that, that uh, the utopian authors claimed that human nature was the same, it's not exactly true. And that's also something that I wanted to point out. Because even for Thomas More, this perfect society was not possible without, uh, and and I would say, a, a misunderstanding of human nature. Because he says this, Certainly in all kinds of living creatures, either fear of lack doth cause covetousness and raven, or in man only pride, which counted it a glorious thing to pass and excel other uh, in the superfluous and vain ostentation of things. The which kind of vice among the utopians can have no place. So there is a certain vice, uh, a certain sinful tendency among the utopians, or that is not present among the utopians. And that is uh, covetousness and greed and the kind of pride that uh, thinks it to be glorious to excel over somebody else, to outstrip the glory of someone else. Uh, This kind of vice, he says, is not found among the utopians. And that is because of the equality that they have, and also because of certain ideals that they have. For example, they all dress the same way. They view precious metals in a very specific way. Uh, And more writes about how they would give their children gold and silver to play with, so that they think of gold and silver as things for children, 
and not for adults, not something that a, a serious person would worry about. So, so we see more playing with human nature and the, the influence on human nature by uh, covetousness, by, by greed, by pride, by looking for glory, thinking and imagining that these things can be overcome if only the society is set up in a certain way. So continuing on, the other aspect of the society, the utopian society of Thomas More, is the fact that there is, we already spoke about the direction, the, the guiding of the society by, by the leadership and the control over the society, but also the control over the day-to-day -day life of the residents of Utopia. How do they live he, he writes this. He says, Now you see how little liberty they have to loiter just to hang around doing nothing. How they can have no cloak or pretense to idleness. So they can't cover their idleness with some kind of excuse. There'll be neither wine taverns, nor alehouses, nor stews, nor any occasion of vice or wickedness. No lurking corners, no places of wicked councils or unlawful assemblies. But they be in the present sight and under the eyes of every man so that of necessity they must either apply their accustomed labors or else recreate themselves with honest and laudable pastimes. So look at this society, which is so well run, so well governed, uh, so peaceful, the perfect society where everybody gets along, where everybody does their share of the work, where no, nobody is, uh, is receiving a, a bigger slice of the pie than anybody else, and therefore they live in peace and harmony and satisfaction and uh, without the strife of, of regular life, uh, normal life in this world. Look at the nature of this society. Well, they have little liberty to just hang around and do nothing. They can't hide. There's no place for them to go to get out of the spotlight. Somebody's always watching them. Uh, they're always in the present sight and under the eyes of every man. So one aspect of that life is the fact that this in Utopia, all of the, the large the cities are divided into households, and each household meets together, large household, extended family meets together for a common meal. And that common meal means that everybody eats together. They don't eat in their own home. That means that private life, personal life, uh, gets shrunk down to something less than what we're used to and what, what human beings generally prefer. But almost all aspects of life become public life so that there's no room for them to hide. Big brother is always watching you. And that's what maintains the utopia. That what, that's what maintains the society. That's what keeps it on track, keeps it going in, in, that, uh, in that way. Also, what Moore speaks about is travel. So travel between cities. So cities within Utopia, within Utopia, uh, all of the cities are of the same size. Uh, they all have the same population and pretty much an equal distance between all of them. And people can travel, he says, people can travel freely between cities. But, but, if any man of his own head and without leave, so somebody just makes up his mind without being permitted, uh, he walks out of his precinct and bounds. He, he leaves his own city or where he's supposed to be, 
Taken without the prince's letters, he is brought again for a fugitive or a runaway with great shame and rebuke and is sharply punished. So you need to have the government's permission to travel. You need to have your papers. You got to show your papers in order to travel. Otherwise, you're not permitted to. And it's explained in a very, very nice way that when somebody travels, they can go and they can do work in another place and they can contribute there as well. But what we see here is freedom being completely taken away. He can't just, you can't just go on a trip just because. You need to have the prince's permission. You need to have the prince's letter. You need to carry that with you. And you need to show that apparently to a guard or, or, or at a guard station or a border crossing, which, which is not mentioned. But you need all of these things in order to go about your business in, in the way that you want to. So freedom in this way also is, is eroded. And he goes on to speak about the, the people dining together. As I, as I already mentioned, he says, though, though no man be prohibited to dine at home. So this, this corporate dining situation where everybody eats together in a central hall uh, is not something that's mandatory. So you're not prohibited to dine at home, yet no man doth it willingly because it is counted a, a point of small honesty. In other words, it's a dishonest thing for you to do. So nobody will do it willingly because, because it would be a shameful thing to do. So the, the, the shaming of the community is what governs uh, the utopian population. And also, it were a folly to take the pain to dress a bad dinner at home when they may be welcome to good and fine fare so nigh at hand in the hall, at the hall. So so the, the quality of the food at the hall, the central meeting hall, the eating hall, is so good that nobody would want to eat at home anyways. In this hall, all vile service, all slavery and drudgery, with all laborsome toil and base business is done by whom? Well, it's not done by utopians. It's done by bondsmen. So it's done by uh, indentured servants, or in other words, slaves. So the utopians themselves don't do the dirty work. They have other people to do that dirty work for them because it's always necessary and it's always going to be necessary to have someone do that drudge work, to do that, uh, the kind of, uh, yeah, difficult and challenging and, and boring work that needs to be done. So you can see that even within the utopia, not everything is as universally good as it may appear. So we have this class, obviously, who, who are only mentioned here, really, uh, of bondmen, of slaves who do the drudge work, who do that difficult work of caring for others and making sure that everybody can live in their accustomed style under the watchful eye of the leadership and of each other. Uh, without the freedom to travel, without the freedom to eat on their own because of, of social pressure. Uh, but, but all of them enjoy these beautiful, delicious meals, and he describes the meals, he describes all of these things, and, and they have all of these, these great privileges. But the one thing that they don't have is freedom, and they don't have the freedom to choose and the freedom to, to not be under the watchful eye of others. And finally... Another aspect of the utopia that I wanted to highlight, there's, there's a couple more. Uh, one speaks about preparation for marriage and 
the the ideals of marriage that Thomas More had, which were somewhat strange, about how uh, young couples could ensure that they would be well suited for each other. But then he also speaks about the end of life. He speaks about population control, how how the population of cities is always kept at the same level, and how people would be moved from city to city, how that that population control was managed by the authorities. But also he speaks about the end of life. He says, the sick they see to with great affection. So they take very good care of their sick. They have a good medical system. And let nothing at all pass concerning either physic or good diet, whereby they may be restored again to their health. Such as be sick of incurable diseases, they comfort with sitting by them, with talking with them, and to be short, with all manner of helps that may be. But if the disease be not only incurable, but also full of continual pain and anguish, then the priests and the magistrates exhort the man, seeing he is not able to do any duty of life, and by overliving his own death is noisome and irksome to others and grievous to himself, that he will determine with himself no longer to cherish that pestilent and painful disease. All right, you can see where he's going here. And seeing his life is to him but a torment, that he will not be unwilling to die, but rather take a good hope to him and either dispatch himself out of that painful life as out of a prison or a rack of torment, or else suffer himself willingly to be rid out of it by other. And in so doing, they tell him he shall do wisely, seeing by his death he shall lose no commodity, but end his pain. So here we see euthanasia being introduced into the perfect society. The person is well taken care of by the healthcare system, but when it comes to the end of his life, he is encouraged to dispatch himself because he's not able to, to do his work. He's not able to fulfill his calling. Uh, his, uh, he's overliving his own death. He's going beyond the bounds that he should be going to, and he's making his life uh, difficult for himself, but not only difficult for himself, he's also making his life difficult for others. So this is something that he does by his free choice, this, this sick and dying person does by his free choice, but not without pressure from others. So they're going to talk to him. The priests and the magistrates are going to exhort him. They're in effect going to make up his mind for him. And in this society, who's going to say, no, I, I want to keep living. I want to I hang in there. I don't want to, I don't want to kill myself. Because the expectation of society is going to be that you're going to kill yourself because it's for the sake of the greater good. So you're going to end your life because your life is irksome, not just for yourself, but also for others. And so the person willingly does that as the society has developed this system of euthanasia to control the population, to make sure that these, uh, these old and frail and sick people are not outliving their usefulness and being a burden on society. So that's, that's really very briefly what, what, uh, what Thomas More speaks about in his Utopia. And I also wanted to speak more briefly about uh, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis. And I don't have any, any quotes from that book. It's very brief, and it's, it's called an unfinished work. But what Francis Bacon's main point in his New Atlantis, which is a, a utopia which actually mentions and refers to Thomas More's utopia in a negative way at one point, Francis Bacon's utopia, or his New Atlantis, is basically 
a scientific dictatorship. And again, so again, we come back to the, the, the technocracy. Francis Bacon was one of the, the scientists of uh, the Middle Ages in uh, Britain who pushed for the development of a royal college or a royal society. And this book really is the, a, a, a propaganda piece for the development of a royal society or a royal college, which would be the governing body of the entire nation, and so New Atlantis is governed by this royal college, and this college is, is doing research, it's developing, it's making, uh, making scientific advances, and he lists all of these scientific advances and, and, and what they're doing and how they're governing the population. And because of this scientific dictatorship, they are working and living in peace and harmony in the New Atlantis another utopia, another no place, a place that does not exist, a place that cannot exist. So this goes back to, again, what I, I started off talking about. Why, why is this one of the big ideas? Well, this, this idea of utopia, heaven on earth, is a constant in this world. There are groups, utopian groups, from uh, you know, we think back to the, the, the 19th century in, in the United States, there were utopian groups that formed communities and communes like the Oneida community. When we think about the early 20th century, we could think of utopian philosophies like Nazism, like communism in the Soviet Union, which sought to create heaven on earth. And we know the results of that. Uh, we also see in later on in history, uh, on a smaller scale in the 60s and 70s, the hippie communes, where they also wanted to create utopia. They wanted to create the perfect society of peace and love and harmony, where everyone was living together in perfect harmony, like the commercial says, uh, the old Coke commercial, about that perfect life lived in harmony, where everybody's equal, where no one dominates, where all things are shared together, and where peace reigns. And we know how all of those utopias have ended. What's necessary for the development of a utopia, as Thomas More showed, perhaps uh, unwillingly or unwittingly showed, is a dictatorship is a surveillance state where everybody's watched, is a state in which uh, equality is, uh, is not something that comes natural because it, it never comes naturally. Equality is something that's imposed from above. Equality is, is something that government imposes on the population. And therefore, uh, it's something that must be accepted. It's something that, that whether you want it or not, you have to take it where you don't have privacy, where you don't have freedom of movement, where you don't have freedom of choice, where you don't have freedom to, to make your own decisions, where all of those liberties are taken away from you. And, and the, the, the leadership, the, the, the people who are on the, the, the top of the pyramid, so to speak, are the ones who make the decisions who, who guide everything using their great wisdom. And that also ties in with Francis Bacon's idea of the New Atlantis and the scientific dictatorship. It's those people 
who are on that upper level who can actually make all of the decisions for the average person who really is too stupid to make these decision, decisions for himself. So we see that the, the negative aspects of uh, utopian thinking, but we see that this is a type of thinking that keeps coming back and it keeps coming back. And it seems like it's a constant that people are continually looking for heaven on earth. In theology, they call that an over-realized eschatology, which means that they try to bring the end, uh, the result of the end into this life. They try to create heaven on earth. They try to to bring uh, a heavenly reality into the earthly realm where it simply cannot exist. So you have to deny reality you have to deny the reality of sin. You have to deny the reality of human nature. You have to deny the reality of the, the entire message of Scripture in order to affirm uh, utopian ideology. But that's what we see happening. And we see that causing so many problems in our society, and as it has for generations. And we see it growing and being implemented more and more as people think that they can inaugurate a heavenly existence here on earth. But we know from history that it's bound to fail. Not only is it bound to fail, it's bound to cause untold suffering. The kind of suffering that we, we know from history, from the utopian communities and utopian experiments, which not only collapsed, like the hippie communes, like the, the Oneida communities and, and those other the communal uh, experiments, but which caused untold so- suffering like the Third Reich in Germany, like the Soviet Union, like Pol Pot in Cambodia, like on a, on a religious basis, like Jim Jones in Jonestown, which resulted in the largest mass suicide in history. All of these utopian ideologies led to disaster and ended in disaster for, in in some cases, millions of people. And when we look at Scripture, we can look at Genesis 3, the fall into sin, the results of the fall into sin. We can look at what the Apostle Paul says about all creation groaning in expectation of the revelation of the sons of God and the fact that, that we are living in a fallen world. But I wanted to focus especially on what we read in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And this is the, the verse, verse 15, that I, wanted to, that I wanted to highlight. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So what, what defines this life? What do we see in this life? What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. This is what God has done. We, he, in, in response to the fall into sin, this, this, this life has become crooked. And it cannot be made straight. We live in a fallen world. And that reality is only going to be ended when the Lord Jesus comes back. 
So we are not going to achieve heaven on earth because what is crooked cannot be made straight. We're never going to achieve absolute equality. The Lord Jesus said, uh, the poor you will always have with you, which is a, a pretty good indication that absolute equality is a pipe dream. It's something that's not possible. And to, to strive for something that's impossible is uh, a striving after wind, to, to use that term of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's trying to capture something that you, that you cannot capture, trying to accomplish something that cannot be accomplished. And doing that is only going to inevitably lead to suffering, to death, and to calamity. So that's the big idea of utopian thinking. We saw it in H.G. Wells, the idea of, of creating the, the technocracy, the scientific dictatorship. We, we go back in time and we see it in Thomas More's Utopia. We see it in Francis Bacon's New Atlantis. And we see it today when, when governments, when governments in association with uh, multinational corporations and international organizations and the United Nations and all the associated organizations are attempting to work together to create heaven on earth, to create utopia in this misguided, futile effort, which will only end in disaster. So here we see the foundations of that. We see the roots of utopian thinking. We see the roots of the term utopia, which is not a place. And we see where it goes and how it develops and how it must end. So utopianism is a concept. It's one of the big ideas that we need to understand. And we need to, and that's why I wanted to go back to the roots of it and, and really think about uh, utopia as Thomas More uh, thought of utopia and the problems that you see, we see in that even right from the very beginning. So that concludes this first episode on the big ideas, the idea of utopianism. And I hope it's been helpful for you and to, to, to think about current situations and put them in their historical context. What, where do they come from? Where do these ideas come from? What are their roots? And where are they going? What does history teach us? Uh, what does God's word teach us about these things? And, and what can we do to, uh, to really uh, push back against the utopian thinking that is really affecting uh, our world and our society today. So thanks for watching. It's been nice once again to speak about one of the important issues of our, our day, even speaking in a, in a very historical way about that. But my prayer is that once again, these episodes will, will help you, this podcast will help you to stand firm and to take action, as Daniel said in Daniel 11, verse 32. And I look forward to seeing you next time. If you do find this helpful, please like and share uh, the video, or if you're listening, uh, share the podcast with your friends who you think also might benefit, it, benefit, benefit from uh, these episodes. And I pray that it will be a blessing for you and for uh, everyone who hears. Until next time.